Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We're beginning a new series today on hearing God when you're hurting. If you are breathing and you've lived any amount of time at all and you're old enough to be in this service, there have been moments when you've been hurting. Some of us are hurting at greater levels than others. But how do we hear God when we're going through crisis and trials and attacks? Where do we look? Where do we turn? How do we survive in a world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel? Where it seems that the cause of Christ is the only thing in the world that is politically incorrect. Every godless thing in the world is politically correct. But the gospel has become politically incorrect. And if you and I are going to live our lives for Christ, then we have to understand that we are going against the flow. And we're going against society, and we're going to have battles and trials and setbacks. There are going to be things that happen in our lives that we cannot understand. We'll live long enough to know that we will have problems with people or that we have problems caused by people or with circumstances in our lives. Stuff happens. Life happens. And sometimes it's not always good. How do we deal with it? How do we respond to it? When the world says the Judeo-Christian ethic is no longer valuable or relevant... When absolutes are gone, when there is no right and wrong, there's just dingy gray, and it's up to your opinion, what do you do? Where do you run? Where do you hide? The psalmist says in Psalm 11 that there is a place to take refuge. And beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 11, he says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? By the way, A.C. Gabelite in his commentary said that verse 3 is the burning question of the day. He wrote that in 1930. If it was the burning question of the day in 1930, it is the burning question of today in 2003. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. This psalm is a battle between those who are saying to the psalmist, live in fear, and his heart saying to him, live by faith. It is between those who are saying to him, you should be discouraged and downhearted. And his heart and his walk with God saying to him, 
have hope because I'm in charge. The question comes when you read this psalm, does God come through when life is falling apart? Is God really there? Now some people believe that David wrote this psalm during Saul's persecution and pursuit of him. Others believe that this was written about the time of Absalom's rebellion. You can actually argue for either one. For in verse 1 he says, Flee as a bird to your mountain. That would imply a reference to what was going on with David when Saul was pursuing him and he was hiding in the rocks and the cliffs and in the mountains. But then you go down to verse 3, If the foundations be destroyed could very well be a reference to Absalom because if the kingdom was destroyed, if his rule was destroyed, if Absalom won with his godlessness and his selfishness, if the foundations of a righteous kingdom established to honor a monotheistic faith of God, what would happen? And so you can argue for either one. David's life, either situation is being threatened. And he's being told to run. But David rejects the advice. If you look, there's a trial in verses 1 through 3, and what you'll find as you look through this, this uh, passage of Scripture is it's not the righteous that need to run, it's the wicked that better be running. Because God is pursuing the wicked and setting snares for the wicked. But there is a test and a trial going on, and there's this advice coming from other people. We don't know who it was. It could have been friends, it could have been family, it could have been his counselors, it could have been his generals, or it just could have been that David was hearing voices in his head that said it would be easier to bail out than to stick through this. It would be easier to just forget about it than to stay and stand for what I believe. And David's counselors are saying to him, this is no time for you to be brave. Pack your bags, leave town, get out of the way. And that is the natural tendency that we have. Something doesn't happen like we want it to happen at school or at church or wherever we might be or at work. Something doesn't happen. You know, first, first thing comes, I'll just quit. I'll just quit. I'll just bail out. I won't learn what God wants me to learn in this. I'll run from what God wants me to learn. By the way, when you run, God knows your forwarding address. And you're just going to learn it at the next place. Some of you say, you say, well, how long have you been in the workplace? Oh, I've been in the workplace for 20 years. i got 20 years' experience. How many jobs you had? 20? No, you got one year experience 20 times. You've been running from learning what you needed to learn. And there's this tendency that we want to head for the tall grass or hide our heads in the sand or move somewhere else and change our name and forget about it and forget we ever went through that and, and avoid. That is the natural tendency of mankind. We don't want to face life. That's why America leads the world in suicide. That's why we lead the world in alcoholism because people try to find peace at the bottom of a shot glass. And it's not there. Why is it that we tend to run? Because our inclination is to run. To avoid, to escape, to not have to deal with reality. And so he's getting this advice. You, you need to take off. This situation is hopeless. You can't survive. You can't make it. It's not going to be fixable. You need to just take off and run and get out of here. 
And there's an, an adversity that comes and an attack that comes on him. He says, the wicked bend the bow. Uh, there are people shooting at you. By the way, if you want to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. The only people who are not criticized are people in cemeteries. If you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be in charge, if you ever make a decision in your life, somebody is going to shoot at you. Welcome to the world. Get a life. Learn that that is life. That when you decide this is the path I'm going to go down, somebody's going to shoot at you. Not everybody's going to agree with you. He said they bend the bow. He, he, this is a decision that the leader has to understand. And any leader or any person in a position of responsibility has to understand somebody's always bending the bow at you. He, I don't know if any of you are fans of far side. Some people aren't. Oh, I think only left-handed people get smart far side because we're smarter. But uh, don't get offended. It's a joke. <laughs> Gary Larson drew the far side cartoons, and I love the one he had of the deer that had the bullseye target on him. And the other deer looks at him and says, Hey, man, bummer of a birthmark. <laughs> You're going to be a target. That's life. They bend the bow. Not only that, the devil has fiery darts. That's what Paul tells us. Paul tells us he has fiery darts, but we have the shield of faith to put up so the fiery darts don't get us. Now, he says they have to bend the bow to shoot in darkness. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed this. I've been alive long enough and I've been in ministry long enough that some people will talk about you and never talk to you. Have you ever? Choir? You, you understand? I mean, some people, you know, they shoot in darkness. They get over in a little cluster and they go, you know, we, we don't like what he's doing. We just don't like what he's doing. Well, why don't you go tell? Oh, I'd never tell him. I'll tell everybody else in kingdom come, but I'll never tell him. You know what that's called? Gossip. Slander. Stirring strife, works of the flesh. Oh, no, 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 no. They shoot in darkness. People love to shoot in darkness. And our culture, with a national inquirer mentality, thinks it's acceptable to go after people in darkness. Just sneak around. See what you can find out. If you can't find out anything, make something up. Ephesians 6.13 says these are evil days. 2 Timothy 3.1, these are perilous times. If you are alive, you're going to be a target. Where do you go for your refuge? I had a meeting in Texas a couple of weeks ago with about 12 mission pastors from all over the country. They were from Seattle, from California, from New York. They were spread out everywhere. I've never seen a more discouraged group of men in my life. We didn't talk about anything I came prepared to talk about. Half of them were ready to quit the ministry. Half of them felt like that they were in the middle of machine gun fire. One of them had been sued by somebody. I mean, it was just one crisis after another. And I said to them, guys, you need to understand something. The average pastor leaves a church over eight people. And I don't know eight people big enough, mean enough, or strong enough to make me leave. And you shouldn't either. Whether you got 18, 80, 800, or 8,000, you better do what God wants you to do and not worry about eight. By the way, some of you 
will quit a job, change, move, whatever, because of eight people. You're no different than a pastor. Somebody criticizes, you know, oh, I've got to quit. I guess I'm going to have to go somewhere else. They're going to criticize you. they got relatives at the next place you go. You might as well get used to it. They breed, man. I mean, they breed. That's all they do is breed. They're worse than gnats. You can't get rid of them. So you might as well learn to live with it. They shoot in the darkness. If the foundations be destroyed, the word really is pillars. If the pillars collapse, the whole house collapses. Terry and I were riding on Ski Mountain a few months ago, and we saw this house, and I, you know, I, I love the mountains, but I don't want to hang out over the edge of them. And, and we saw this house that literally, if this were the edge of the mountain where my foot is, literally the house started right past the edge of the mountain. And I looked down, and the pillars holding up that house were at least 60 or 80 feet tall. And then when the earthquake hit, in North Georgia and Alabama, and you could feel it up in Tennessee. First thing I thought about, I wonder if that house is still standing. Because I want to tell you, you can build a wonderful house. That was about a $300,000 house. You can build a wonderful house, but you lose the pillars and you lose the house. We've seen a house up in the mountains in Tennessee that literally slid down the mountain. The pillars collapsed. The foundation was destroyed. And, it just, and it's laying on its side. The house is laying on its side. Why? Because somebody didn't do a good job of laying a foundation. Somebody didn't establish something that needed to be established. And so they gave in and they caved in. And he says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Can I answer that question for you? Go on being righteous. What do you do when the foundations are destroyed? What do you do when the culture is going crazy? What do you do when the world is attacking you? What do you do when life seems to be against you? You go on being righteous. Paul said that we're to stand firm or to stand fast in our faith. And that, that very phrase implies that we're always under opposition. And so you stand in Him. Secondly, there's a truth declared. There's an announcement of faith. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. I want you to turn back to Psalm 2. We're going to look at a few verses. And 41 times in the Psalms, David uses the word refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. 41 times in 150 Psalms, we find that word. Let's just look at a few of them quickly. Psalm 2 and verse 12. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 5, verse 11. Psalm 2 says that we're blessed. Psalm 5 says, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy and may you shelter them. Psalm 7 and verse 1. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all who pursue me and deliver me. Psalm 18 and verse 2. Psalm 18 and verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Now they told him to flee to the mountains. Hide in the rocks of the mountains. He says, my rock, 
my refuge is God. Psalm 46 and verse 1. Psalm 46 and verse 1. A verse you're very familiar with. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I have a friend of mine who, when he calls me, he always says, well, hello there. I say, how are you doing? He says, and this is his next line, is it well with your soul? Is it well with your soul? David did not view trusting in God as some kind of religious escapism or denial. David viewed it as the only option that any believer should consider, to go to God as a refuge. Now, there are three different words for trust in the Psalms. The first one is translated refuge, like it is in Psalm 11. There's a second word for trust in Psalm 9 and verse 10, which says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. That word for trust means to lean upon. One means to take refuge. The second means to lean upon. The third word that is used for trust in the Psalms is a word in Psalms 22, which is a reference to Jesus. And it says that Jesus rolled over His burdens onto God the Father. And so we go to God for refuge. We go to God to lean upon Him. We roll our burdens onto Him because we know He can take care of us. Casting all your anxieties upon Him, Peter says, because He cares for you. The psalmist says in verse 20 and verse 7, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what am I leaning on? What am I rolling my burdens on? Am I trying to figure it out? Am I trying to juggle it? Am I trying to handle it? Am I trying to fix my life? Or am I rolling it on to the Lord? That's not escapism. That's reality. That's dealing with reality. Letting God be the one you trust in. But there's awareness of God here. He sees God in the middle of it. And what he says is, you know, I realize God's not shaken by all this. Heaven's not in a panic. God is allowing this in my life to prune me so I can bear more fruit, to conform me into the image of Christ, to make me more and more like Jesus, to teach me to trust in Him and not in my flesh. And so he looks at God and he says, here's where God is, in His holy temple. Now let me tell you what this is a picture of. God is in His holy, holy temple and He says God is on His throne. It means that God is not panicked. God is quietly going about His business and He knows exactly what your business is. And He knows what you're going through. And He knows what everybody in this room is going through. And yet He's not panicked. He's not stressed because He knows how it's all going to work out. And so because God knows how it's all going to work out, God is in His holy temple. Well, you say, well, David, the temple wasn't built when David wrote this psalm. That's right. David is looking to the heavenly temple where God reigns and rules in heaven and he says God's in control and he sits on his throne in heaven which means that God is just and righteous in what he does and so I can trust him in that. 
Now, there's two things here. First of all, God sees. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. That word behold means to divide. It's actually a picture of squinting. Now, when I don't have my contacts in, or when I don't have my glasses on, sometimes I'll squint to try to see what's discerned. Get the fuzz out and try to make it as clear as I can. He says, God is looking down and he's so focused that all he can see is what he's looking at. And what he's looking at is you. He beholds, he scrutinizes, he evaluates, he discerns as he looks at us. God sees, he's all-knowing, he sees everything. Now that's significant because of verse 2. Because the enemy is shooting in the darkness. David can't see those shooting in the darkness, but God sees them. David doesn't know where the arrows are coming from. God knows. And he says God sees, and not only God sees, God scrutinizes. He tests the righteous and the wicked. Both the righteous and the wicked. Why? Because the righteous are approved and the wicked are judged. So God is testing. He's scrutinizing. And He's approving of the righteous and He's judging the wicked. Say, so, well, it doesn't look like it. Well, last chapter hadn't been written yet. Last word hadn't been spoken. And so we come to the triumph that is stated in verses 6 and 7, and that's where God settles it all. God settles it in verses 6 and 7. The upright will behold His face. Now, there's two things here. First of all, I can praise God for what He's doing. I can praise God for what He's doing. What's He doing? Jesus is interceding at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is within me, interceding. God is reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's watching over me as a loving Heavenly Father. He has given me His Holy Spirit to comfort me and to come alongside me. That's all that God is doing for you right now. Not when you get to heaven. That's right now. That's what God's doing for you today. At this moment, whatever you're going through, He's interceding, He's reigning, He's watching over, He's giving the Holy Spirit, He's praying for us. That's what He's doing right now, but there's a praise for what He's going to do. Because one day we're going to see Him. The upright will behold His face. First John says, we shall see Him and we shall be like Him. So I want to ask you to go to the book of Micah. Micah chapter 6. Because if I'm going to take refuge in the Lord, that's a step I need to take because God is righteous, verse 7, and God loves justice, verse 7. So if God is righteous and if God loves justice, then I'm going to be like God in my situations and in my, my trials and my problems and my circumstances. If I'm going to be like God, then I need to know what being like God looks like. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. And these, this is a verse you need to remember when you think about bailing out. Because this is what God expects you to do. First of all, you take refuge in Him. Secondly, Micah 6 and verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
So there's three things that I have to do when I'm in the middle of a battle. First of all, I have to do justice. All that means is do what's right. Do the right thing. Just do the right thing. I have to do what is right. I can't be right with other people and not right with God, and I can't be right with God and not be right with other people. I have to do what's right. Secondly, love kindness. Now, I want you to notice something. He did not say do kindness or do kind acts. Because then you ask the question, well, how many do I have to do to know that I've met God's requirements? I don't know. It says to love kindness. In other words, your heart is bent to err on the side of grace. You love kindness. You love it when you see kind acts. You love it when people act kind. You affirm that in your life, in your family, at your work. You affirm kindness because you love kindness. You're not the elder brother trying to figure out when your, your side's going to get fixed. You never thrown a party for me, Lord. You're not griping at God, but you love kindness. And when God is kind to someone else, you love that. You don't sit there and go, well, why hasn't He been kind to me? Why am I going through all this? This is what God requires of us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. By the way, you can't do justice and love kindness if you're not walking humbly. I want to give you a quote. You need to write it down because you're going to have to chew on it for a while. It's one sentence. It's by Vance Havner. God grant us the beatitude of the background. God grant us the beatitude of the background that only Jesus may be seen in us. God grant us the beatitude of the background that only Jesus may be seen in us. You do justice, you love kindness, and you walk humbly. And you know what people will see in you? That you've taken your refuge in Jesus. When you do justice and you love kindness and you walk humbly, people will know that you're walking with God. And it won't be about you It'll be about God. And when they brag about what's going on, they will brag about your God before they brag about you because they will see your God is dominant and you are surrendered because you have taken refuge in Him. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Catt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.